Well, this is the time of year that begins to be more and more taxing as it gets closer and closer to April. And I don't know about you, but things kind of reverse in my mind at this time of year as you look toward taxes, because as you look over the course of the last year, I know for me, every paycheck, you know, was a joyful thing. Every little bit of income is a joyful thing. And sometimes writing out that tithe and offering is a winceful thing, a painful thing. But then you come around to tax time and everything switches, doesn't it? Every bit of income that you look back over at, you wince. Because more income means more tax. And every bit that you've given is... Um, becomes joyful because that means less tax. And it's funny when you think about looking at our tax obligation and how income and, and output and things like that and the attitude that we have toward that totally switches when it comes time when the year is up. Beginning of the year, it's different. End of the year, it's different altogether. It's almost like it's upside down. But in another sense, it's right side up. And I can't help but wonder as we approach, when we have that time of judgment before the judgment seat of Christ for rewards, if it's not going to be like that, that where what we initially winced at, now we are praising God that we had the, the privilege of being a part of. I want to ask you to turn with me to the book of Revelation. Route 66 began in Genesis, and we wound our way through, taking a message from each of the 66 books of this great book. And we come to the last of those, the book of Revelation. Usually when you think of Revelation, you think of doom and gloom and fire and judgment and crazy creatures flying around, uh, all kinds of stuff. Well, it's there. But that's not what we're going to be looking at today. In Revelation chapter 2, actually the first several chapters of Revelation, you have the Lord Jesus' focus is primarily upon the church. And you don't read anything about the church. In fact, the church isn't mentioned after chapter 4 because the church is gone. It's been raptured. There's no tribulation at all for the church. But the first three chapters have everything to do with the church. And in Revelation chapter 2, we see a letter that was written to a church that hadn't gotten a letter from God in over 30 years. During the persecution, during the first century, people were persecuting Christians, and they tried to take the Apostle John, took him to Rome, and they tried to kill him by throwing him in a boiling pot of oil. Problem is, it didn't work. God spared his life. He was fine when they got out. Well, this kind of discouraged them, and so they thought, well, what can we do with him? If we can't kill him, let's just get rid of him. And so they sent him to a place called Patmos. It was an island, and it's still there today. You can even take a cruise ship to the island of Patmos there in the Mediterranean Sea. And you can see you've got, you know, the church. Any time there's anything that goes on in the Bible, well, let's we'll build a church so we'll remember it. But this is Patmos. And from this spot, you find out why it is that 
you know, all the other apostles were martyred, and yet the apostle John keeps living. Why does God want John to survive the boiling oil and to go to Patmos? Well, because it was from Patmos that John wrote the book of Revelation, the place where we get the vision of the future. And he writes a letter to a place called Ephesus. Look at the first verse here with me in chapter 2. So we're introduced to whom he's writing. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. And we'll stop there for a second. Written to the angel of the church in Ephesus. You know what angel means? In the original language, that word just means messenger. They've translated it here, angel, because a lot of the times, most of the time, in the New Testament, that's the way that word is translated. It means an angel. But here it doesn't mean like an angel, but it means uh, a messenger or the, uh, the pastor, basically, of that church. And I know it's confusing to you because you never think of pastors as angels. But it means messenger. Uh, to the messenger or the overseer there of the church at Ephesus. And so this is a, a letter written to the Ephesian church, specifically to the messenger that's there. And Ephesus is a place that has not received, as I said, a letter from the Lord in 30 years. If you look at Ephesus today, you can see, uh, you can walk through its ruins. This is the place the Apostle Paul walked. I mean, he would have walked down that street right there. He would have been able to go into that very Colosseum. In fact, the Colosseum that you see there at the top right, if you read in Acts 19, talks about an event that took place in that Colosseum. And to this place, Paul went on his third missionary journey, spent about three years there ministering, living, teaching with them. And uh, then he left and he put Timothy in charge to pastor the church there. And then for 30 years, this church stayed faithful to the Lord. Paul even wrote the book of Ephesians, of course, to this city of Ephesus, to the church that's there. And now 30 years later, the Holy Spirit inspires the Apostle John to write another letter, very short, to the Ephesian church. And it's, it's to the messenger in Ephesus, and then it says, the one who holds seven stars and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Who is that? Well, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. We have that from the context of chapter 1 very clearly. The seven stars, again in chapter 1, are the seven messengers, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. But particularly to Ephesus, there is a message given here, and it begins here in verse 2. Look at what Jesus says. I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot endure evil men, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not. And you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. He starts off affirming them, which is fantastic. And he affirms them in two specific ways. He affirms their deeds, first of all, where he says, I know your deeds, and he gets specific. He says, your toil. It talks about a, a wearisome toil. The original language focuses on the fact that it's, it's burdensome. It's very difficult. He says, I know your toil, and I know your perseverance. You don't give up. He says, you've got plenty of deeds. This is a church that is active. 
These Christians didn't lack any kind of continual activity for Jesus Christ. They were continually active and have been for 30 years now, have been faithful in their deeds. And he also says that they're faithful in their doctrine because he says you can't endure evil men, particularly those who call themselves apostles, but they aren't. You put them to the test. If they don't match up, if their doctrine doesn't line up, then you don't accept them. And so here you have a church who for 30 years has been faithful to the Lord Jesus in what they're doing, they're serving the Lord faithfully, and in their doctrine. They haven't crawled off into some weird belief, but they've stayed faithful in these two key areas. And with that, Jesus commends them. He says, you have perseverance, you have endured for my namesake, and you haven't grown weary. This is a fantastic church. Uh, this might be called the Church of the Year you might say, as you look at this. And a lot of people would look at this church and be content to have it. You know, everybody's doing deeds that honor God. Everybody's got correct doctrine. Nobody's believing anything goofy. And yet look at what Jesus says here in verse 4, just the beginning of it. He says, but I have this against you. He tells them, you've got great deeds, you've got great doctrine, but... I've got something against you. What could Jesus Christ possibly have against a church that is doing things right, they're doing things right, and they're believing things that are right? What is it could be? Now, I want, you to, really, I want to really challenge you to think about this because we tend to think the same way. We tend to think that if we're living right and that if we're believing right, that everything's okay, that everything's right in our relationship with Christ. And yet, to these folks who had good deeds, who had good doctrine, Jesus says, I still have a major problem with you guys. I have this against you. And if it were us to whom Jesus were speaking, very easily, and maybe they thought this, really? Well, what is it? You know, you just tell me, what are we doing? Because for 30 years, we've been faithful. What is it, God, you want me to do? You want me to start a Bible study? No problem. Lord, I'll do it. What is it you want me to do? You want me to memorize the book of Romans? Sure, no problem. I'll do it. You just tell me what it is, Lord, and I'll do it. But it's not that you're not doing, and it's not that you're not believing, Jesus says. He says, you really want to know what it is? Look again at verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. You have left your first love. What does that mean? What does Jesus mean by first love? Well, the word that he uses here for first doesn't mean just like first, second, third, fourth, fifth. It's not, you know, order uh, of where you're standing or whatever, but it's rather order of importance. First in importance is what the word means. It's the idea of preeminence. It's the idea of who's chief in your life. What is the chief love for you? What is the most important thing for you? It's me. I am your most important love. And you have left that. You're still doing the right thing. You're still believing the right thing. But he says, guys, your love for me is not the reason you're doing it. You're not doing the right thing and believing the right thing because you love me. It's for some other reason. I think it's very easy. I know it's very easy. Just like this Ephesian church, 
to be unwilling to compromise in deeds. You know, right and wrong, you do right because you're supposed to do right. To be unwilling to compromise in doctrine. I mean, we're not going to let any false doctrine into this church. But how easy it is for us to be willing to compromise our devotion to, the, to God. We'll do the right thing, we'll believe the right thing, but for the wrong reason. To do the right thing just because it's the right thing is the wrong reason to do the right thing. There is a deeper reason that's rooted in loving Jesus Christ. Years ago, there was a guy named Charles Templeton. was a close friend of Billy Graham, actually was kind of a fellow preacher with Billy Graham. And they would preach to, of course, huge masses of people. But Templeton, over the years, began to kind of wander through doubting, intellectual doubting about Christianity. And eventually, he ended up basically punting the faith. And he tried to get Billy Graham to do the same thing. And Templeton wrote a book called Farewell to God, My Reasons for Rejecting the Christian Faith. And this is how he lived the majority of his life. When he was 83 years old, which was not too long ago, uh, Lee Strobel, the journalist, used to be an atheist, became a believer, interviewed Templeton and asked him what he felt after a lifetime of rejecting Jesus, how he felt now as an 83-year-old man who's suffering from Alzheimer's disease, how he now viewed Jesus Christ. And this is what Templeton said in the interview. He said that Jesus was the greatest human being who has ever lived. He was a moral genius. I know it may sound strange, but I have to say I adore him. Everything good I know, everything decent I know, everything pure I know, I learned from Jesus. He is the most important human being who has ever existed, and if I may put it this way, I'm missing. And Strobel said that Templeton's eyes after that, he said that he refused to say anything else, that Templeton's eyes just welled up with tears, and he wept freely right there in front of Strobel. You see, this guy left his first love. There's a subtle thing that can happen in the Christian life if you're not careful. If you're not careful, and I mean it takes a daily feeling of the pulse to know if it's taken place or not, because it's so subtle. It can happen so easily. And that is that when you begin the Christian life, for whatever reason, by God's grace, you understand that the sin that you have in your life, the burden that you have on your shoulders, all the sin that you carry is enough to keep you out of heaven. It is enough to be offensive in the sight of God, and there is nothing that you can do in and of yourself to earn it, to earn heaven. And yet God in his grace reveals to you that you don't have to earn heaven because you can't earn heaven, and that burden of sin that you have on your shoulders was actually placed on Jesus Christ when he died on the cross. And if you have faith in Jesus Christ, that he has died for your sins, then your sins are forgiven. And I tell you what, there comes a point when you realize that, look, you've got nothing to offer God. I mean absolutely nothing to offer him. And yet he has died for you. He has made a way for you to go to heaven. There wells up within you a love and a gratitude that is unstoppable when you first place your faith in Jesus Christ. And that excitement, you don't know much, you don't know much of the Bible, uh, you don't know much of what you're supposed to do in the Christian life. All you know is that Jesus loves you, died for your sins, and you are so desperately in love with the God who loved you so much to die for you rather than to judge your sin. 
And then you begin to grow in the Christian life. You come to church, you read your Bible, you're taught a little, little of this, you're taught a little of that. And the subtlety here is that the shift becomes less relationship-focused on Jesus Christ and becomes much more activity-focused now on, I've got to read my Bible, I've got to pray, I've got to come to church, I've got to serve, I've got to give, I've got to do all these other things because that's what a Christian does. And we're converted from, it's almost like a deconversion from our relationship with Christ, now we're converted again into Christian culture. And we do all the Christian stuff we're supposed to do. And it's like this Ephesian church, they've stayed rock solid in their doctrine. They've stayed even rock solid in, in doing what's right. But they have shifted from doing it because they love Christ who died for their sins. They do it now because, well, it's just what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to do all this stuff because it's right. But there's no love. There's no excitement. It's just pretty much going through the motions. I have this against you, Jesus said. You've left your first love. You've left the love that is most important. And if you're like me, this verse 4 causes you to stop and take some serious stock in the busyness of your life. Because busyness is often one of the main culprits that robs the joy from the Christian life. We're doing too many things and for the wrong reason. There is a principle that emerges from this text. It just jumps out from Jesus' words here, and it's this, that Jesus hurts when we do all the right things from any other motive other than love for him. You see, Christ doesn't just want slave laborers who keep good doctrine. He doesn't just want drones that do what they're supposed to do, but don't love him. All throughout the scripture, you see God passionately pursuing a relationship with people and going to extraordinary lengths that that relationship might be able to happen, not the least of which is coming down in the form of a human himself, becoming man himself. Talk about bridging a gap and dying on the cross, an innocent death, and yet he took all our sin on him. This is the depth at which God wants a relationship with you. And to do anything for him, to, to do the right thing for any other motive at all other than love for Christ can cause Christ pain. Oswald Chambers says, you need to beware of anything that competes with loyalty to Jesus Christ. The greatest competitor of devotion to Jesus is service for him. Isn't that interesting? Remember the story that Jesus told one time where these, he told about these people at the end of time that were going to come up to him and say, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do miracles in your name? I mean, those are some pretty mighty things. And Jesus says, depart from me for why? What did he say? I never what? I never knew you. Wow. Doing all this stuff in the name of Christ, and then come judgment day, Christ says, that's great, but I never knew you. You see, the things that we do are not just to be some ritual that we go through our church duty, but we do the things we do out of our relationship with Christ, that we're rooted in love because he died for us, because he rose for us, because he promises to come back again for us and to take us that where he is, we may be also. 
Remember when Paul wrote to the Corinthians, that backslidden Corinthian church? And he asked him, he says, look, what good is it if I give my body to be burned, if I give all my possessions to the poor, but I don't have love? He says, it doesn't profit anybody anything. See, what is love? And that, that passage always messed with my mind until finally, honestly, honestly, this year is the first time I feel like I really understood it. Because what is love? You know, you got the love, I mean, the Greek word agape means a sacrificial love. And I'm thinking, man, if that's not sacrifice, I don't know what is. Give your body to be burned? You know, give all your possessions to the poor? I mean, if that's not sacrificial love, I don't know what is love. But the whole thing behind it is, look, it's not just going through the motions. But why are you doing it? What's the motivation? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You know, all my marriage, I've been giving myself up for Kathy, but I've found out, honestly, that a lot of the struggle that I've had is that I give myself up for her so that she'll like me, so that she'll think good things about me, rather than giving myself up for her so that she will grow in her relationship with Christ. What a revelation. That's exactly what Jesus Christ is talking about here. It's not just that I, he says, I don't just want you to do the right things. I mean, that's great. But please don't stop there, because I guarantee you, you'll burn out. You won't be able to keep up the pace. You've got to do the right things for the right reason, and the right reason that you do everything right is that you love me and that you're grateful for what I've done for you. Our greatest act of obedience, the Scripture tells us from cover to cover, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. Every part of you, physically, socially, spiritually, emotionally, every part of you that lives, lives because you love God. So let me ask you a question. What's your motive? Can you stop long enough to really think about it in your own heart of hearts? Why do you do the right things you do? Okay? Now, we know why you do the wrong things, because we're selfish. All right? Now, why do you do the right things as well? Why do you resist temptation when you resist temptation? Is it because you know the consequences will come back around and they'll get you? Is it because you know that you'll be embarrassed and people find out? And so you resist temptation to avoid the consequences? Why is it that you serve God in some way? Is it because you know, well, this is what I'm expected to do? Why is it that you read your Bible? Why is it that you pray during the week? Is it because, well, my conscience will bother me, to be honest, if I don't? Why is it that you, that you do what is right? All of those reasons are good motivations, but they're inadequate when the trials of your life come in and begin to press you, I promise you, you will abandon them because your own, even consequences, are not enough to keep you faithful. There's got to be a deeper reason, and that reason is love, love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember what Christ asked Peter after Christ was raised from the dead? comes up to him and says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, well, sure, I love you. Jesus says, then feed my sheep. And then he asks him again, Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. A third time, Peter, do you love me? 
And it says that Peter was grieved that three times Jesus asked this, do you love me? And then Jesus says, feed my sheep. Why would Jesus Christ say that three times to Peter? Because I think one of the things he's trying to communicate to Peter is the same thing that Jesus is trying to communicate to Ephesus, and it's the same thing the Holy Spirit is trying to communicate to you and me today. That it's not just that we have the obligation to feed Christ's sheep. It's not just that we have the obligation to do the right thing. But what's the motivation behind that? Do you love me? Christ asks. That's the bottom line. Do you love me? And Jesus said one time, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Keeping Christ's commandments is rooted in loving him. It's not rooted in just fear of consequences or doing the right thing or that's what's expected of us. If you've slipped into the error of that subtle shift from relationship to just ritual, as the Ephesian church did, look at what Jesus says in verse 5, because it's a wonderful remedy to ritual. Jesus says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, and repent, and do the things you did at first, or else... I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. What's the lampstand in the context? It's the church. So what's he saying? He says, don't just go through the motions, guys. Make it real. Let your heart be involved in what you're doing. Because if you don't, Christ says, I'm going to come. And, I'm, and I think what he means is, I'm going to remove the influence that your church has. Have you ever been in a church that's been like this? You walk in, I mean, you know, the organ's blasting, every, all the, the church, I mean, it looks just like a fantastic church, but the people just, you know, morning, morning, oh, I'm doing great. And then, you know, there's just, it seems so dead. And even the worship, you know, to sing together, all hail the power of Jesus' name, dead. And then the pastor gets up and starts to talk, and it doesn't help any. You know, I will now read from the book of Revelation. You're just going, man, is this the same Jesus that my Bible talks about? You guys believe in the same Jesus I believe in? It just seems so dead. Have you been to places like this? It just breaks your heart. And you want to just think, what has happened? Has, has God taken his lampstand away from this place? Has the, has the influence that this place has in the world been taken away because no longer it's a relationship with Christ, it's just going through the motions. You know, that can happen here at Denton Community Church, too. I don't think it has, but I know it can. That we can get so used to just doing what we know we should be doing, but if we don't have an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, and the things that we do are rooted in our love for Him, then He'll come and He'll take our influence away. He says, you can go ahead and play church if you want to, but I'm not going to be part of it. So what do we do? Well, he's told us here three things, three commands here in verse 5. First of all, he says, remember from where you've fallen. Remember from where you have fallen. Yesterday at the men's breakfast, Warren Nystrom came, dear friend of mine, 69 years old today. He uh, came and he shared about how he has lived the Christian life. He grew up on a hog farm way up north, he says, and became a veterinarian and 
fell in love with Jesus Christ and got married and had kids, and he said that he remembered the time that his, his son went as far, even as far as going to seminary and called him while he was in seminary, and his son called him and said, Dad, I want you to know that today I placed my faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, seminary is a pretty good time to do that, you know. <laughs> Fortunately, it happened for Brian. Anyway, he calls and tells him, I placed my faith in Jesus Christ, and even as Warren was sharing that, you know, he just, he just welled up as he does, you know, the drop of a hat, and his jaw just starts quivering, he can hardly talk, bless his heart. And he said that from that memory, he says that memory is one of the things that just causes him to want to pour himself into the lives of other people. And you know what, to be honest, that memory's benefited you because Warren is one of my closest mentors that I get together with. And he just says that that memory causes him, stirs him to want to pour his life into other people. Memories have power. And Jesus is saying, look, I want you to remember. I want you to remember back to when your jaw quivered, to remember back to when your eyes welled up, to remember back to that time when you first fell in love with me, that first love, to where nothing else mattered but you and me in life. Remember that. Remember where you've fallen, how far you've come since then. Yeah, you know a lot more, but do you still love me like you did back then? Or are you just going through the motions? Remember from where you've fallen. Secondly, he says repent. Repent which means change the way you think. Uh, repentance kind of gets a bad rap in our culture today. You hear the word repent, you know, and you get the, the mental picture of a, of, a, of a television preacher with rings on every finger, you know, shaking his finger at you, repent. And uh, that's not what repent means. Repent doesn't just mean, look, clean your life up. Repent means change your thinking. The literal Greek word that's used here means a change of mind. You change the way you think. And so how do you apply that here? It's very easy to apply this here. Every time you do something right, and this will take a while to develop the pattern, but when you, when you do something right, realize, look, Lord, I'm sitting down and I'm opening my Bible and I'm not going to sit here and read because this is what I'm supposed to do. I'm not going to sit here and read so that I can check off my box, you know, for February 17th. I'm not going to sit here because if I don't sit here, my conscience will bother me all day long. Lord, I am devoting this 15, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, however long your time with the Lord is. I am devoting this time to you because I love you. That is how you begin to think. When you resist temptation, when temptation comes up, you need to say to the Lord, Lord, I am resisting this temptation because I love you more than I love these urges within me. When you're serving the Lord in whatever ministry that God has given you, you don't do it from a begrudging heart, well, this is what I got to do and I'll just choke it down. But you say, Lord, I'm going to do this because I love you. You see, when, when he says repent, change the way you think, that really means it. You start thinking differently. And everything you do that's right, think, God, I'm doing this because I love you. That's my motivation. You know, I don't drive 30 miles an hour down Elm Street because it makes sense. Because it doesn't make sense. 
to drive 30 miles an hour down this street, you should at least be able to go 35, maybe 40 miles an hour down Elm Street. But I drive 30 because that's because I do it because I love God, not because it makes any sense. Because it doesn't. There should at least be 45 miles an hour down Elm Street. <laughs> but I go 30 because I love God. And you know, there's a lot of times you're going to be reading this book and you're going to come across something that makes absolutely no sense to you. In fact, you're going to want to lean on your own understanding. You're going to say, Lord, you know, it makes a whole lot more sense if we handle it this way. And God says, I don't want you leaning on your own understanding. I want you to trust me with all your heart. And do it because you love me. So repent. Change the way you think. And then finally, Jesus, he says, remember, repent, and then finally, do. Three commands. Remember, repent, do. Do the first deeds. That is, from a heart that loves Jesus completely. And I say first deeds because that's really the way the original language says it. Here we have it translated, uh, remember the deeds you did at first. And that makes more sense. If we just said did the first deeds, that wouldn't make a lot of sense to us. So that helps. But first deeds, I think that's significant to point out because it obviously relates to first love. First love, first deeds. I want you to do the deeds you did from a heart that is motivated by love. Do the first deeds from a heart that loves Jesus completely. You know, it was eight years ago this month that I ran my first marathon, and my last marathon as well. Uh, at least so far. I don't know, I might do it again, but that's a major time commitment to train for a marathon. And a February, Fort Worth, Cowtown Marathon, bitter cold morning. Oh boy, I got out there, and I was feeling fantastic. Ready to go. Gun, you know, gun goes off, and boy, I just take off. And uh, doing great, you know, first, I don't know, however many miles. And then about mile 16, my body begins asking me questions, like, why are you doing this, okay? And things start to hurt. You know, you hear about runners hitting a wall. Well, I remember that day, the wall hit me. Je uh, legs feel like jelly. Arms feel like they're just, you know, you can't even hold them up. You feel like the hinges in your knees are needles going through. It, you know, it's pivoting on a needle. I mean, everything hurts. Your arms hurt, your legs hurt, your hair hurts. Everything is in pain. And to top it off, I felt like I had a watermelon in my bladder. <laughs> and I mean, at mile 19, I was looking around for one of those porta-potties. And they had them scattered all over the place in the race, except, you know, from mile 16 to 19, they didn't have it. Finally, mile 19, I see one. And I run over to it. And this is the first, and I didn't want to stop, because once you stop, it's hard to get going again. But mile 19, first time I stopped in the race, come to the porta potty and the door's locked. Oh, so now I gotta start trying to run again and now my problem's still with me. What is 19, mile 19, there's what's 26, so I got seven more miles to go here with my watermelon. And I'm just trudge through it, trudge through it, get to mile 25, and I think, okay, great, one more mile, I can know I can just do one more mile. Now, how many of you think that a marathon is 26 miles? No, seriously, not a trick question, okay? You're wrong. It's 26.2 miles. It really is. And I found out when I crossed the 26-mile marker, because I thought it was 26 miles. Here I am, I see the 26-mile sign going by, and I'm going, 
where's the finish line? How many more miles is this thing really? And it was another almost quarter of a mile, you know, it was around a turn, I couldn't see the finish line, but oh man, I thought, I thought it was 26, I knew it was 20, I started getting delirious. 26 miles, I know it's 26 miles. And finally I turned the corner and I see the finish line, oh, thank goodness, it's downhill and anyway, it was over. But I say that to say that this is what life is like. Life, the Christian life is like a marathon. And that you begin strong, and you think, man, I'll be able to lick this thing without a problem. And then you get to about mile 16, and God allows a little pain to invade your comfortable life. And you wonder, God, maybe I'm out of your will. This pain doesn't seem like your will. Sometimes this must not be, this must not be right. But you know what? That race that God has given you to run is not all about just a pain-free life. Uh, God didn't call you just to begin the race, but to finish it. In fact, he promises that there will be pain in it, because that's his mode by which there's no other way that we'll be sanctified. We're hardly ever sanctified through prosperity, but we are sanctified through struggle. Remember where you've fallen, repent, and do the first deeds. Jesus asks you, do you love me? Do you love me? And you know what the temptation is as we begin to go along that race and the thing really begins to hurt? Is we begin to look at other runners. And we think, man, if I had that guy's shoes, I'd be okay. You know, if I had that guy's, you know, water bottle or whatever, if I had been able to train as long as that guy, I wouldn't have a problem. All right? Now take it out of the race and put it back into your life. God, if I had that spouse... My life, my Christian life would be just fine, right? That's wrong, by the way, okay? If I had, you know, if I had this paycheck, if I had this church, if I had, you know, it just goes on and on, you begin to look around and you think, God, you're giving me the shaft. Everybody else has got it better than me. When the truth is everybody struggles just like you do. I want to tell you something what, this, what this verse, these verses are teaching us is absolutely critical to you making it in the Christian life for the long haul. Because you can go some time doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do, but you can't go the long haul. At some point, like Templeton, you're going to end up punning the faith. And I don't necessarily mean you become an apostate, but I mean there will come a time where God will bring you to a crisis in your life and you'll realize doing the right thing just because it's the right thing isn't enough motivation for me to do the right thing. And you won't do the right thing. There's got to be a deeper motivation that takes you all the way back to your first love. That is that you do what you do because Jesus Christ died for you. And he loves you so much that he gave his life for you. And your life is to live in gratitude for him. You won't be able to forgive people. You won't be able to stay faithful. Uh, I mean, the list just goes on. There's no way you can forgive somebody that's hurt you because they don't deserve it. Right? That's your rationale until so you hold that grudge. But Jesus Christ is worthy. And we do it for love for him. So I want to ask you what Peter was asked by Jesus that day by the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Do you love me? Jesus asked. Do you love me? 
Do you love me? Do you love me? And feed my sheep. Do the right thing because you love me. And that's the only reason. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, what a privilege it's been to be able to go through Route 66, to be able to take a portion of every single book of the Bible and to finish it up today with a passage I could hardly find more appropriate that brings us back once again to the basics, that takes us back to our first love. Father, I pray for the one here today that is struggling. For whatever reason, they are so tired of doing what's right because it just doesn't seem to be paying off. And Lord, I've been there. I know that struggle myself personally, as you know I do. And I pray, Lord, for all of us, whether we've been there or whether we may be headed there, that you might take us back once again to the foot of the cross, that we might remember that before you, we had nothing in ourselves, that we were headed for condemnation. But in your grace and in your mercy, you died for our sins. And now, Lord, we live because we love you. And we want to do the right thing because we love you, not just because it's the right thing. And so I pray for the ones struggling here today that you would help them to repent, that is to change their thinking, to do what they do, not because it's right, but because they love you. We pray in Christ's name, amen.